Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, AI hiring processes come under scrutiny in New York City. And if you're traveling to Japan in the next year, why you might only need to pack underwear and a toothbrush. Then we'll tell you all about how the auto industry has made a surprise comeback after being down 3-1 to the pandemic before bringing you some big news from the footlong world where Subway sandwich artists finally have a new toy to play with. It's Thursday, July 6th. Let's ride. All right, happy Threads Day, Toby. Uh, Meta launched its conversation app Threads last night in the biggest threat yet to Elon Musk's Twitter. Zuck said it got more than 10 million signups in its first seven hours. Toby, you've been playing around with Threads. What are your first impressions? I'm in my Threads era. My first impression is it feels kind of like Twitter in the suburbs almost, where it's a lot more wholesome. Everyone's kind of excited. They're seeing their friends there. There's a lot of celebrities that are kind of posting on it. And my biggest like takeaway or what I'm looking for is, is it going to shift more towards the Twitter voice, which is a little bit more unhinged, a little bit meaner, honestly? Or is it going to stay in kind of like this wholesome era where people are just excited to mix it up with their friends again? So is it going to be like a Twitter voice or an Instagram voice? Yeah. That's what I'm looking for. Though I will note uh, when our videos get posted to Instagram, Instagram is by far the meanest platform (laughs) in terms of comments. So I don't know how wholesome Instagram actually is. That is true. I I, When I say wholesome, I mean just a little more meme-y and just big meme accounts kind of dominate it. But you're right. We still love you, Instagram audience by the way. We'll, we just put that freak. Yeah, you, you, you hold us accountable. We love it. All right, let's start uh, with big news in the HR and AI worlds. A New York City law went, to, went into effect yesterday that requires firms using software to make hiring and promotion decisions to get their algorithms audited and post them publicly online. It's a first of its kind law in the country. Um, using AI to sift the resumes has skyrocketed in popularity in the past decade. Nearly one in four organizations use AI to support hiring processes, according to a 2022 survey. And that share grows to 42% when you're talking large businesses with 5,000 or more employees. So not sure if anyone was aware, but if you apply for a job at a big corporation, your application initially probably will not be seen by a human. Instead, it's going to be scanned by software looking for keywords on your cover letter, and then it maybe passes you through to the next round. Next round. But AI recruitment comes with the same problem as human recruitment. I'm talking about bias, specifically gender and racial bias. This New York City law, which could be copied by other cities and states, aims to hold companies more accountable for bias in their AI hiring algorithms by making them air their dirty laundry for all to see. Yeah, I feel like this is in direct response to how easy it became 
to apply to jobs online in the first of all, mm. because you can machine gun fire out your resume right. to with like one click on LinkedIn, you can apply to 500 places. So then there was this rise of AI screening in order to just sift through that massive amount of applicants. But this law doesn't, might not have the teeth that the lawmakers are expecting it to have because the language in it says that this technology uh, will come into play when a uh, the algorithm is making a substantial is substantially assisting or replacing a human decision. And that word substantially is something where companies are seeing a loophole because as long as the AI isn't deciding to hire someone, then they don't have to get it audited is mm. what like legal yeah. experts are saying. So who knows how it, the, the spirit of the law is such that they want these algorithms to be less biased and to not right. factor that into their decision making. But the letter of the law, people are saying, well, that word substantially is going to give yeah. a lot of companies an out on this. Yeah. But maybe if it, you know, if they do show something, it's not going to prevent it. It's like an indirect mechanism, right? It's saying you have to post your algorithm publicly online, and by doing so, uh, you know, you're you're going to feel shame or embarrassment uh, if you have to if you have to show how you use hiring decisions, um, and it is showing that you are degrading, you know, yeah. uh, black people and women from. Uh, from hiring because of your your AI systems. Yeah, it is interesting too that this law was first passed in 2021, so it was kind of predated the whole AI craze that we're in. So this has been a oh, problem. this is a thing that's been going on for a long time. For a long time, this isn't like ChatGPT doing stuff. This is actual. Not that ChatGPT is not actual AI, but this is you know previous era AI sifting through resumes, and it was interesting to look at. It's not just sifting through resumes and cover letters for certain keywords. You know, they you can have an interview with a chatbot, right. and they're going to analyze your. They use machine learning to look at your like facial cues and the way you talk and the AI is analyzing that. So you can see how that would have a lot of bias because humans are training these AI systems. The AI was seen as this way to be super objective in the hiring process, right? Because I'm a hiring manager and I'm looking at you and you're like kind of good looking or something. And I'm like, oh, and then I say, what do you do in your free time? And you're like, oh, I love watching sports. Right. And then I'm like, oh, this guy is a great <laughs> candidate. I'm going to hire him. Like we can be best buds. And then AI might not have that, uh, bias. that bias. And that's the idea. But in effect, I'm coding the AI to look for certain traits and historically men European white people have been the top candidates or they've certainly like dominated industries like tech. Mm -hmm. And so they might, you know, filter out, uh, you know, women and minorities. Yeah. And we mentioned ChatGPT in this conversation. We do just want to hit on, do a little check-in with ChatGPT okay. since we haven't talked about it in a while. And it turns out that worldwide traffic for ChatGPT actually dropped in June. So it was 9.7% lower than in May. And it's the first time traffic has fallen to ChatGBT since its launch. So I don't know if it's uh, panic time, like hit the panic button on AI, but it was interesting because a lot of people thought this was on a trajectory to just become the most visited site in the world. And now it's leveled off a little bit. Yeah. We're seeing people spend a little less time on there as well. So some, some of the hypotheses were interesting why this went down. Number one was summer break. Uh -huh. Because because a lot of experts were saying the number one use case for large language models like ChatGPT is 
do my homework. <laughs> right, right. So when kids are out of school, there's no homework to be done. Uh, and so they're just not using ChatGPT as much. That is so interesting. That's, that's definitely true. And honestly, OpenAI might not be that mad about it because it costs so much to uh, Sam Altman, OpenAI CEO, says it's an eye-watering amount to run ChatGPT on a daily basis. And so experts have estimated it costs $700,000 a day just to keep it up and running. So maybe they're not panicking because one, you, you mentioned some of the external factors, and then two, they're saving a little bit of money because there's just less pressure put on mm -hmm. the website. All right, Neil, um, let's move on. We've declared this the summer of lots of things, the summer of Barbie, the summer of Lost Submersibles, the summer of Blonde Toby. But what if it's really the summer of a different thing? The summer of cars. Okay. Yes, that's right. Good old-fashioned automobiles are having themselves an unexpectedly fabulous first half of the year. New vehicle sales in the U.S. are estimated to have risen about 13% in the first half of the year, which totally caught off guard a lot of industry forecasters, given the rising interest rate environment plus the inflationary pressure a lot of people are facing. So the star of the legacy auto show so far has been GM, who represents the biggest market share of the U.S. auto industry, and yesterday reported a 19% increase in sales in the second quarter. Plus, yesterday we talked about Tesla, whose deliveries jumped a whopping 83% from a year ago in the second quarter. These are some pretty eye-popping numbers, and it seems like it's coming down to automakers finally yeah. figuring out their production and supply right. chain issues. Yeah, because during the pandemic, they couldn't get their chips, and people wanted to buy cars because they were flush with cash, and you know their cars were getting old, uh, but, cars, but automakers could just not make enough cars to deliver to people and there were not as many models out there so you would go to the dealer and they'd be like yeah this is literally all we got we can't make anything more yeah so they're finally being able to make enough cars of a wide variety to meet the demand and we're seeing it. it's pretty it's pretty cool yeah there's been auto industry experts are saying there's just been this huge flood of pent-up demand right. where they people can finally buy the car that they wanted with the cash that they might have saved up earlier this year the average age of a passenger vehicle on the road hit a record age of, of a record high of 12.5 years. So everyone's like, I got a real clunker There's here. There's a lot of mature lemons out there. Yes, yeah. they're like, I mean, my parents, my, my dad's car has almost 200,000 miles and my mom's has also a lot of miles. Like these are yeah. old, they're not old cars, but they are seasoned, they're <laughs> veterans and they're starting to look for a new car. And what, what's interesting is we did, we just went car shopping over the weekend and my mom was looking for a hybrid SUV, which is like literally the intersection of the two growth trends, which is everyone's buying trucks and SUVs, and there's been a huge increase in demand for EVs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. On that note, well, first of all, just running through some of the automakers' numbers, Honda sales were up 25% huge hyundai sales hyundai hyundai god i said i cannot I, I i was waiting hyundai, the story for you to try to say hyundai hyundai. sales are up 14 percent in the second quarter and then even rivian who's the electric truck maker yeah. who can't seem to deliver any vehicles is figuring things out it reported a 59 percent increase from the previous quarter that still only comes out to 12,640 vehicles so it's not a no it's not huge numbers but you're totally right that evs are continuing to power like the rise of the auto industry yeah. They accounted for 7.2% of all new vehicle sales, and they're already at over 500,000 vehicle sales for the year. And just to put that in perspective, last year, consumers bought only 800,000 
just over 800,000 vehicles in the year. So we're already trending upwards. Yeah. And they're, they're definitely the main growth driver. I think the fact that Tesla, a lot of these automakers have started to use Tesla's standard charging infrastructure, that was one of the biggest barriers to entry for an EV is like, where am I going to charge this thing? And Tesla is the only one that has actually built out right. meaningful charging infrastructure. And now that pretty much every big automaker and a bunch of the other EVs are saying, we're going to adapt our cars to be able to plug into Tesla's charging infrastructure. That's been uh, a big relief to consumers who are, who that is the main hang up for yeah. buying an EV. Right. And then finally, I know we always say we are not financial advisors on this show, but if you're looking for maybe a deal, two outliers of this trend of autos, uh, industry doing really well were the Jeep Jeep makers Stellantis and Toyota, who both posted a 1% drop in U.S. sales for the first half of the year. So if you're looking for a deal, they'll probably be looking to move some excess inventory mm -hmm. because inventories have caught up. But if they're not selling, then they're going to start, you'll, you'll see those Toyota-thon events and, <laughs> and, the, and the big deals coming. So not financial advisors, but maybe look at Jeeps and Toyotas. All right, Neil, before we jump into the next story, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, Toby, we are back with our Thursday segment, which I can't believe it's Thursday. I am so discombobulated this week. Uh, but Neil's numbers grounds me. And uh, I know it's Thursday when I have to pick three different numbers or stats or facts from the week's news that I've read and I want to share with you and share with our entire audience. So to start... Older Americans are aping into stocks like they're bored degenerate sports gamblers in the summer of 2020. Check out these stats compiled by the Wall Street Journal. Almost half of Vanguard 401k investors over age 55 who actively manage their money have more than 70% of their portfolio in stocks. Back in 2011, it was just 38%. And then over at Fidelity, about 40% of investors age 65 to 69 had at least two-thirds of their portfolios in stocks. And the pattern holds even as you go up the age bracket. 20% of Vanguard investors 85 or older have almost all of their money in stocks compared to 16% in 2012. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Uh, the conventional wisdom is as you get closer to retirement, you park your money in bonds or cash where you may not earn as big of a yield, but your money is at least safe from the inevitable market crashes. But stocks have outperformed bonds for the past couple decades. Then the Fed showed it's going to step in during crises to prevent the market from totally bot bottoming out. So boomers are just saying YOLO. I It makes sense because, yeah, as you mentioned, the stock market has historically, since like records were being kept, returned 7.2%. Yeah. But in the last kind of since boomers have been alive, it's returned right around 10%. Yeah. So, I mean, if you can get a bigger return, and yeah, as you said, like the Fed plays a huge role in that, like the backstop, the backstopping it, it yeah, like bonds are just not sexy anymore. Let's let's get into the stock. No, maybe. I think the big thing is inflation, right? So if you are thinking about putting your money in, you know, a T bill or a Treasury, right? You're, you're like, well, I'm going to return three or four percent, and then I look at, you know, I listen to this podcast and I hear <laughs> us talking about the fact that inflation is four or five percent. You know, I'm like, well, I'm not going to make any money anyway. I'm losing money, actually. Right. So might as well just kind of go into stocks. But it is kind of risky. I don't think I would employ this strategy as I'm getting up. Like, I would just, getting up there in age, I would be a little safer. Because uh, you just don't know what's going to happen in the stock market. Obviously, it goes up and to the right yeah. over the course of history Lifetime. and over the long term. But if I'm just trying to yank my money as soon as I get out uh, of work. So you're you're like... 
maybe the next generation is going to return maybe. back to the bonds. This is scary. Yeah. I, I am, I don't know, maybe I'm, again, I'm not a financial advisor, but like <laughs> looking at these numbers kind of spooks me a little bit. I hope, <laughs> I hope they're okay. Um, all right, moving on to our second one. Uh, we've talked a lot on the show about the surging popularity of women's college basketball and women's soccer, but today women's golf could get its own coming out moment with the start of the U.S. Open, which is being held for the first time at California's iconic Pebble Beach course. The sport is loaded with young talent, and I guess this is my number here. Women in their 20s hold 19 out of the top 20 spots in the world rankings. So this is just like a lot youth of up-and-comers, youth movement. The name to know, though, and you're going to hear this name a lot in the coming years. Make sure you write this down. Rose Zhang. She's a 20-year-old phenom out of Southern California who recently turned pro and could be the Victor Wembanyama of women's golf. Just a little shorter. And she went to Stanford, just like Tiger Woods. So a bright spotlight will be on women's golf this weekend. The U.S. Open purse of $11 million is the biggest ever in the sport. And NBC is devoting primetime coverage to it on both Saturday and Sunday. So there's a pretty big investment going on yeah. here. Rose is electric. And we're not financial advisors. We're also not gambling advisors. But if you had to put money on someone, I think she's great value. because She's plus 1100 right? She's plus 1100 She just wins. She w- she's Won, she won over half of her college tournaments. She won her first ever start on the LPGA. So, like, Rose Rose is the truth. She is the Tiger Woods. And she uh, set the course record, yeah. right, for women at Pebble Beach Again, with 63. Feels like great value. I would, I'm, I'm hammering Rose. Are you hammering Rose? Yeah. But it's interesting because uh, – Women's golf is has not kind of taken off like a bunch of the other women's sports that we've talked about, like soccer, softball, um, what else? Basketball, women's college basketball was huge in March Madness. And they're saying that, you know, women's golf is this massive opportunity with so many young stars, a lot of Americans coming through. Yeah, the and they're just like not doing a good job of promoting their stars and capitalizing on it. I mean, the Women's PGA Championship a couple weeks ago had fewer viewers this year than last year, yeah. even though it had like a star-studded field. So uh, this is, I, I hope they can capitalize on this moment. Yeah, I, I think this is a coming out party moment for sure, just because Pebble Beach also. Pebble Beach is iconic. So it's going to be on in prime time. Yeah. So we will be watching. For sure. And you might lose a lot of money if you listen to Toby, <laughs> that's for sure. All right, uh, our final number, uh, Toby, it felt like I sweated out half my entire body weight on July 4th, and it turns out I was not alone. Tuesday was the hottest day around the globe recorded by humans since at least 1979, and some scientists say it was probably the hottest day in 125,000 years. The global average temperature reached 62.92 degrees Fahrenheit. Why so hot? Well, climate change for one, the start of summer for two, and then tack on El Nino's warming patterns, and it's a triple whammy for scorching temps. By the way, Monday was the hottest day on record before Tuesday broke it, and by the time we get out of the studio this morning, they could announce that today, that yesterday was the hottest of all. Yeah, we're looking at a chart right now in front of us where it's showing global temperatures year by year, and this little like uptick is definitely noticeable, and yeah. you can see it. It's not good. Like, it's not good. No, it's really not good because I was thinking that over this past weekend, I was dripping sweat while being outside. And I was thinking, you know, I'm in Massachusetts, right? Like, it's not even that hot. It's 80 degrees. What if I'm in Texas where this heat dome has been baking it for, uh, for, two, three weeks now, you can't go outside. You know, AC is humming like crazy. Our grid is strained. Yeah. It's kind of 
a little freaky. I know. And I'm I'm a summer guy. I'm I'm from Florida, it's but bad. even this is it's a little too hot for me. And in China, there was a massive heat wave. Beijing has seen temps of over 95 for nine straight days. Yeah. It's like a global phenomenon. The Antarctic is warming. <laughs> it's, it's I'm not like a climate doomer, but it's something about that the heat like makes you it's your your brain go places. Yeah. All right, Neil, thank you for those numbers. As always, it is a pleasure. Um, but let's move on. You know, I'm a Subway guy, right? The sandwich place, not the transportation system. Well, Subway has been going through some rough times recently. So the peak Subway years were back in like the mid-2010s. 2013 is when sales at U.S. locations hit $12.3 billion at a peak. But fast forward to 2021, and sales are down almost $4 billion from that peak. So Subway has started to reinvent themselves. They overhauled their menu, started hickory smoking their bacon, and doubled down on just more quality ingredients. But as of yesterday, it made its biggest change yet. Franchisees are going to start freshly slicing their deli meats in-store instead of having them arrive pre-cut. And so, Neil, as a proud and unwavering Subway supporter, I, for one, am extremely excited about this. But would it make you go to Subway more? I think that's the question. It's more just getting in line with kind of the industry standard because Jimmy John's, uh, Jersey Mike's, even Firehouse is slicing their deli meat. And it just. See, I had no idea. It, and it you, doesn't matter to me. You're not as much of a sandwich connoisseur. What do you mean? I, I am the biggest sandwich connoisseur. I'm just saying, I don't know that Jimmy John's and Jersey Mike's slice their meat in house. Like, it is not a deciding factor for me when dis- when figuring out what sandwich place I'm going to go to. I, it's a huge deciding factor for me because when you go to Jersey Mike's, it is like paper thin it layers nicely it feels like you're actually eating a deli sandwich versus subway it's kind of like thicker it's wetter it's it's not it's not arriving and uh feeling in that fresh yeah fresh way which is so weird because subway's whole thing is eat fresh they wanted fresh ingredients and yet they're bringing this like old uh, gray looking like turkey meat so it does not yeah their turkey meat does not look good but it's a big investment right these things are so expensive each slicer costs six thousand dollars and subway spent more than 80 million dollars to provide these deli meat slicers so this is not a small financial uh thing by any means and six thousand dollars for a meat slicer yeah that's a lot i did a little um focus group yesterday i was asking people i saw saying i I was like subway's gonna introduce you know freshly cut meat in their uh in their stores like will that change your perception of subway will it make you go more and they were like the number one thing was like will it be slower Oh, interesting. Well, I because they because people think of Subway as convenience, fast, right? And so I, I didn't hear like, oh, I could use less mealy turkey. Yeah, that, that's true. I think that their plan is to slice it throughout the day, so it's not like you order a right. sandwich and then it's sliced. Yeah, so but, people, people hate Subway too. Like I've asked people about this too, and they're just like, absolutely not. Like I haven't even thought about Subway. Oh, yeah. I, I like Subway. I and, have good memories. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also looking for a buyer. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's being sold. They're looking for a price of $10 billion, which would be the largest, you know, leverage buyout of a food re- restaurant company in a long time. I mean, the last one, last biggest one was in 2010 when Burger King sold for less than, four, or the parent of Burger King uh, sold for less than $4 billion. And then Duncan was bought by our, the Arby's owner, Inspire Brands, a few years ago uh, for $8.8 billion. So uh, Subway is looking for a 
really high price, and maybe it's kind of boosting its price here with a little it's, with the slicer. It's the biggest uh, restaurant, U.S. Right. restaurant chain uh, in the country. Right. So. There's so many subways. Yeah. If you're driving in a rural area yeah. and you go to a town, there won't be a McDonald's or a Burger King there. You will see a Dollar General, and you will see a Subway. <laughs> they are everywhere. I think there's 37,000 stores globally. I love it. People don't know that. Maybe I should have used that for my for one <laughs> of my numbers, but we got to it. Okay, our final story. I have a question. Would you rent airline would you rent clothes from an airline if it meant you had to pack basically nothing for your flight japan airlines wants to find out the carrier began a 14 month test yesterday that will allow passengers to rent clothes that will be delivered to their airbnb or hotel when they arrive for a price starting at about 28 bucks you can choose from a range of clothing options that for men like me and toby could mean a winter basic set with a puffy coat, two sweaters, two pairs of pants, and a sweatshirt, but you could get more formal clothing if you were traveling for business. The idea behind this is environmental sustainability. The more weight that an airplane holds, the more carbon emissions it produces. The plane just needs to do more work uh, when it's heavier. Japan Airlines says that foregoing about 22 pounds of luggage on a flight from New York to Tokyo could reduce carbon emissions by 16 and a half pounds, which is the same as not using a hairdryer for 78 days. <laughs> so if people decide not to bring any luggage on the plane because they're renting clothes from Japan Airlines, this could lead to meaningful emission savings. Yeah. Uh, but that's a big if. I think it comes down to two things on if consumers will actually adopt this. One, reliability. You need to show up and have your clothes be there. Yeah. Like the one time they're not there and you're you're literally left naked out to dry, that's going <laughs> to really, really change consumer perception. And then two, the fashionability aspect, I think, is a big thing, too. You don't want to wear clothes that are not in your style. You don't want to wear clothes that are ugly. So it does feel like a very meaningful opportunity for a Japanese retailer or someone to, like, partner with yeah. Japan Airlines to serve some fits, basically. It was not It was a little surprising that they didn't launch with a retail partner. I right. think that would put some people at ease. But you said that people say don't, they don't like uh, dressing not with their fashion, but I think a lot of people don't have of fashion sense well, and they want people to dress them right so why not japan airlines yeah. what if <laughs> comes it, along i'm like sure what the heck like they run a multi-billion dollar company they maybe know what they're doing like they could probably put some clothes on my bed and i'd wear them i could totally see this being one of the like a business case study of best business pivots ever where suddenly people just love like the fashion delivery service and they just become like the stitch fix of, of japan or something like that the so. problem is the the sizing right like we were talking in the control room before this and I was also, you know, this was my main worry is you get to Tokyo for a two week stay. You have sweaters there. You're swimming in the sweaters because a small is a little different than the small you yeah. wear. You put on the pants and you can't zip them up. And then you're like, well, I am totally screwed because I literally have a, of a toothbrush <laughs> yeah. and deodorant and that is it yeah i don't know i i love packing light so this is definitely for for someone like me so this is real light. it'd be nice not to have to fight over overhead bin yeah. space but it, it you know talking about the actual environmental sustainability aspect is interesting because airlines are trying to cut back they account for three point three point five 3.5 of all uh, carbon emissions so it's pretty substantial amount um and then a lot of countries are kind of cracking down remember france is uh 
outlying domestic flights where you could take a train for two hours right. uh, and get there. So you can't yeah. even take a plane. It dovetails very nicely with your with your warming stat from earlier. I know. So Japan Airlines, they're doing something about it. But apparently rental clothes is not necessarily right, like right, the right. greenest thing because I'm wearing it. I'm giving it back to you. You're putting in the wash. You're using all of these materials. You're using yeah. a lot of carbon emissions just to, you know, get it ready for the next person. So many angles to think about. No, it's a, it's a super interesting story. Um, that is our show, though. Uh, we'll have to leave it right there. Uh, thanks so much for listening and watching. If you want to reach out to us, our email address is morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com. Also, head over to the YouTube channel and let us know, A, if Subway slicing its meat in store would make you go more, and whether you do this Japan Airlines thing, we can do a little focus group. Uh, huge shout out to our crew who puts the show together. Bryce Beloff is the editor and producer. Samantha Velas and Raymond Liu are the associate producers. Yuchenawa Ogu is our technical director. Billy Benino is on audio. Hair and makeup melted into a puddle of foundation. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today. Hey, Neil, let's run it back tomorrow.